Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Welcome to another in the series of Sam Talks Technology. I'm super excited because I've got a superstar guest today. His name's Rory Sutherland. He needs very little introduction, but I am going to make one. He's vice chairman of Ogilvy. He runs the behavioral science practice within it. Rory, you have had a new book. It's been out for a little while, which is called Alchemy. What's the book about? Well, since writing the book, I've discovered there's a kind of parallel instance in medicine to what I'm talking about, which is in medicine, you have the effect of a drug that you might be testing, and you also have the placebo effect. And... The placebo effect undoubtedly works. If you give people sugar pills, they kind of get better. But that's considered kind of invalid. It's cheating because it's psychological rather than pharmacological. <clears throat> and so when you evaluate the success of a drug, you try in your test by doing a randomized control trial where some people get placebo and other people get an identical looking but real drug. You try and subtract the placebo effect from the overall effect and that is deemed to be the efficacy of the drug right now i would argue that given that the placebo effect is contributing to the effectiveness of the drug in other words if it's a painkiller part of the reason why the pill works is not because of its chemical contents it's simply because taking a pill makes us feel better weirdly even if we know it's a placebo by the way placebos work that's one of the strangest things and it obviously triggers some sort of emotional response because we associate pill-taking with getting better. And so it, to some extent, achieves just by suggestion this effect. Okay. Now, what I'm saying is the effectiveness of the pill is not actually the effectiveness of the real pill less the placebo effect. It's the combination of the two. And what medicine should be doing is trying to look to maximize the effectiveness of the drug and in combination, the effectiveness of the placebo effect. And by the way, you can make the placebo effect more effective if you make the drug more, for example, painkillers are more effective if they're red. Sometimes three small pills are more effective than one big one in terms of maximizing the placebo effect. There are quite a lot of them, but I mean, you know, placebos are more, more effective if you tell people they're expensive and they're more effective if they're branded, would you believe it? Okay. Right. So a familiar brand like Nurofen is more effective at getting rid of your headache than an identical chemical, which is just branded ibuprofen. Okay. Right. Now, what's interesting to me about that is it seems that we treat chemical effects that we can measure as a valid form of medicine, whereas the placebo effect by dint of being psychological is cheating. But don't we just rule out homeopathy in the same way? Well, we, we, we probably shouldn't rule out homeopathy because if it works through placebo, then it works. Which is what it supposedly does. Which is kind of what it's supposed to do. You can also argue, as Nassim Taleb sometimes does, that when we're ill, we feel the urge to do something about it. And actually doing something that's, at the very least, harmless, okay, which also has some beneficial placebo effects, is, by the way, a much preferential alternative to taking a load of poisonous stuff, 
which might be net harmful. So given that, you know, given that historically an awful lot of medical treatment was, you know, deeply poisonous and harmful, there were some incredibly wrong-handed ideas, there still are, by the way, I'm sure, then something that actually is a, is a harmless activity which prevents you doing something worse is net beneficial. But what it was trying to be fascinating is we do the same thing in everyday life. So we treat... We treat psychological solutions as being cheating, okay, <laughs> whereas real solutions are proper and decent and right. Now, I'll, I'll give, give me just a little story about this, okay? If you want to reduce the annoyance at NHS waiting times, now, just to be clear, obviously there are some conditions where if you present an A&E, it's very, very important, you'll see it very, very quickly. Yes. A lot of the effort to reduce NHS waiting times is simply because patients find it annoying. Uh, you might argue, by the way, if there were no waiting times at all, people would present themselves to A&E with totally trivial complaints. So you need to have some sort of level of inconvenience just to kind of ration the service. Yeah. You know, if you had an NHS A&E drive-through service, you know, like McDonald's, you know, you would be just actually creating a whole lot of unnecessary demand. But let's part that for a second, okay? You can make um, waiting much less frustrating with a whole series of psychological innovations. I'll give you a few examples with queuing. A queue that keeps moving is much less frustrating than a queue that grinds to a halt. Disney puts little markers in queues that says five minutes to go, four minutes to go, three minutes to go, which uh, apparently makes a wait of an equivalent time enormously less annoying. Uh, by the way, a queue where the end of the queue is out of sight is much more frustrating than a queue where you can see the end of the queue. If you really want to make people in a queue upset, then have another queue alongside their queue, which is moving faster than their queue. Right. And so there are lots and lots of psychological things you can do which make a wait of equivalent duration inordinately less annoying than it would otherwise be. Right. Okay. Now, in, in, in terms of NHS waiting times at A&E, my cousin was a consultant at A&E for many years. And there's a very strange and very interesting effect, which, by the way, works even if you know what's happening. Okay, it's like a placebo, which works even if you know it's placebo. If you go to any and you say, I've got this condition, and the triage nurse sees you reasonably quickly and says, you do need to see the specialist, but it's going to be a two-hour wait. If you're shown through to a different waiting room, you're perfectly happy for the two hours. If you're sent back to the original waiting room, you're, you're angry. Okay, yeah, you, you get really, really angry. And funnily enough, I went to visit the consulting firm in London, KPMG, and they do exactly the same trick in their reception. If they're expecting you, they show you through to a kind of mezzanine waiting area with newspapers and there's an espresso machine, which is above the main reception. Uh, funnily enough, they were late. They were about half an hour late. And one of the things I noticed, even knowing about this trick, was because I'd been shown through to a different place, I wasn't remotely angry. If I'd been left on the ground floor where I'd first arrived, you know, after 25 minutes, I probably would have got a bit pissed, you know. And so the interesting thing about that, I think, is the, the explanation I'll give is fairly simple. In terms of our monkey brain, what makes us happy and what makes us sad isn't the duration of a wait. The relationship between our mental state and our, you know, our level of annoyance is not a linear relationship with duration. And yet, that's all that government targets. That's the only thing that counts. 
is reducing the weight in the SI unit of time. Okay. Now, my argument is, look, in monkey brain terms, if you're shown through to a new waiting room, you've kind of been upgraded. You're already making progress. Yeah. If you're sent back to the original waiting room, you've been rebuffed. And we can't help responding to experience in this kind of monkey-like way, you know, where we're highly sensitive to context in what we react to. Now, my argument is, exactly as with the placebo, look, if you can make people happier without changing the objective reality, e.g. speed of a service, but you can make it less frustrating, that's not cheating, that's a win. Yes. Because if the purpose of the activity is psychological in the first place, reducing annoyance, and part of the solution to that is psychological, then just as if the purpose of a painkiller is to reduce pain and the placebo effect helps reduce pain, then the placebo effect is contributing to the solution. And in the same way, if the purpose is to reduce annoyance, then a psychological trickery is in the same way contributing to the solution and it shouldn't be subtracted from the solution or ignored it should be treated as part of the solution right i'll take this you can take this point to lots and lots of related areas e.g you know what's the problem with tax cuts well regardless okay of the economic rights and wrongs and whatever your politics is there's not much point in giving someone a tax cut if they don't appreciate it and I would argue if you cut tax for people, two years later, they just got used to their new level of after-tax income and they don't notice it anymore. If you kept the tax rate constant and you paid them a rebate every year, they'd notice the tax cut for 10 years. Right. Now, if the purpose of a tax cut is A, to sort of reward people, okay, and let's face it, to be noticed, and to change behavior so that, you know, people behave differently. My argument is, look, since the end result of this, the end purpose of this depends on psychology, it's completely wrong to freeze psychology. Now, this is what economics does. Mainstream neoliberal economics tries to create a psychology-free, context-free, species-independent uh, model of human behavior. That's a vacuum. It's, complete, it's, it's a complete contrivance because, you know, economics as a discipline should be a subset of psychology. The Austrian school believed that. You know, people like Schumpeter, von Mises, etc., they had this thing called praxeology, which was the study of human action and decision-taking. And their view was that economics was the study of praxeology under conditions of scarcity. Right. Now, mainstream economics tries to... I, I, I you know, had dinner with Robert Trivers, the evolutionary biologist, last night. And he has a wonderful piece in his book where he goes, you know, very simply in science, physics sits on maths, chemistry sits on physics, biology sits on chemistry, psychology sits on biology. And economics should be a division of psychology because it's concerned with how humans think, decide, and act. But what the economists have done is they've cheated. They've tried to go, no, 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 it's too all fluffy and ambiguous. Let's just cram it in somewhere between maths and physics, which is a place where it doesn't, it, it can't and shouldn't sit. Because if, you know, patently, if, if, if the subject of economics is human economic activity, then you can't actually make decisions about that without, first of all, acknowledging what makes us specifically human. 
just as you, you know, the the television we're looking at now mm -hmm. okay television's a species specific not many people know it because you can't buy dog televisions although i am thinking of marketing them the reason tv's a species specific is red green blue the three colors produced by the tv work for humans and higher primates in in basically creating an impression of reality because in our eyes we have three types of cone and they're sensitized to those three parts of the light spectrum okay now a dog tv would only have two it would only need to have two colors per pixel and they'd be different colors right yeah and so even, economics i argue my dog never watches telly no, your dog thinks you're ripped off, basically. It says, well, you, you pay $900 for this, totally washed out piece of shit, you know. I mean, and pigeons would, re as I, I always make this one, pigeons which can see five different, and they have five different kinds of receptor cone, including ultraviolet. Uh, your pet snake, by the way, is really disappointed that your TV doesn't do infrared. Right. So, you know, living things on your TV to your, I'm assuming you've got a pet snake. Everybody yes. in Marlowe's, everybody in Marlowe's got a pet snake, yes. they, for God's sake, you know. Um, but the funny enough, it's not detected with their eyes, but they've got these little things um, uh, kind of near their nose, which detect infrared. So a picture of a living thing to a snake, which didn't actually emit some heat, would actually look weird. Right. Yes. And so just as televisions have to be species specific, my argument is that a proper discipline of economics would have to be species specific because ultimately in evolutionary terms, different species of things are trying to do different things over a different time scale, by the way, as well. Okay. Now you, you, in your book, uh, I mean, your book is a wonderful read. I, uh, I read it again last night in preparation. So I read it the first time round. the logic, what you're basically saying in the book, if I'm right, is you're looking at magic versus logic quite a lot in the book well, and well, you call it, is, it psychologic what it is very simply is that magic is psychological okay there's no magic in newtonian physics right yeah, um but you can produce magic in psychology which means that unlike that kind of newtonian idea of economics where nothing can be created or destroyed there's no such thing as a free lunch you can magically make people really really happy not by changing the thing itself or the circumstances, but by changing the way they look at it. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. I was coming into land. I was actually landing at an airport, and it was clear that given that the engines had wound down and we were nowhere near the airport terminal, it was pretty clear that we were going to get a bus. Oh, God. <laughs> shit. I wanted a proper air bridge. We've been demoted to the shitty bus. <laughs> can, can you swear on Marlowe? Is that, is that it's okay? fine. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. I haven't scandalized anybody. Uh, anyway. So, but anyway, the pilot did this brilliant thing. He said, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is uh, that uh, we won't be able to get you an air bridge because there's a plane blocking the gate. The good news is the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your carry-on bags and you won't have to walk through 500 yards of corridor just to retrieve your checked-in luggage. And once he changed our, the nature of our attention, it's worth remembering that advertising means to effectively to redirect attention, the anima advertere, okay, it's the origin of the phrase. When you change what we pay attention to, you then change what becomes important. And having seen the bus as a bit of a, an inconvenience, I now saw it as a conveyance because I was conscious of the journey I wasn't having to make by dint of having the bus. Right. And so, by, by and, and in the same way, 
I'll give you a lovely story, which I always tell. I'm sorry about this to people who, you know, weirdly listen to me a lot. My father wouldn't buy Sky TV. <coughs> my father, just to be clear, he's now 89. He's not remotely interested in the sport. I wouldn't watch any sport if you paid him to, with the possible exception of a bit of tennis. And yet, he loves documentaries. And I explained to him, look, if you have Sky rather than just terrestrial TV, there is a plethora of factual channels. In fact, you know, you've got like, PBS, the Smithsonian, History, National yeah, Geographic. And, and just go, he, I mean, he adores that stuff. You know, if he had three hours of like Nazi mega structures or something, yep. you know, that, that to him is perfect television, right? And I said, you really ought to get Sky. No, 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 it's too expensive. This is a few years ago. Oh, it's 17 pounds a month. And just to be clear, I said, no, I'll pay for it. You know, if you seriously, you'd enjoy this really a lot. I, you know, I'll happily pay for it for you. you well, no, no, 17 pounds a month. Now, bear in mind, he was born in 1930. For most of his adult life, all you paid for was the BBC license fee, and that was it. The rest of your TV was free. So banging on another 17 pounds a month seemed quite well. And then I did a, what you might call kind of Don Draper trick, if you know the character from yes, Mad Men, yeah. which is I didn't change reality. I just reframed it. And I said, look, well, actually, I said, when you think about it, it's not 17 pounds a month, it's 60p a day, isn't it? He goes, well, what difference does that make? I said, well, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. He gets the Times and the Telegraph every day, okay? I said, well, if you're spending two pounds a day on newspapers, it's not that crazy when you think about it, spending 60 pence a day to get another 120 channels of news TV and factual television. <laughs> oh. No, I suppose it isn't. Weirdly, having me having offered to get it for him, he then went and bought it himself and has become a complete evangelist and devotee. <laughs> and he absolutely loves the whole thing. Right. Uh, and by the way, I, 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 one day I will appear on your programme and say there is a whole separate question of marketing technology to the relatively elderly. All new products are always marketed to the young. Okay? And there are loads of reasons for that, by the way, which is if you market a product explicitly to the young, older people will buy it. Whereas if you market a product to the old, younger people won't. You know, this is why small cars are overwhelmingly bought by people in their 60s and 70s, bought from new, right. just to make the distinction. And yet if you produce an ad for the new Peugeot 108 or whatever it is, you will show it being driven by a 28-year-old woman. Yeah. And the reason is, you sh if the user imagery shows a 28-year-old woman buying it, it doesn't stop 75-year-olds buying it. But if you show your car being driven by lots of 75-year-olds, it's kind of off-putting to people who are 28. But this asymmetry means that technology is disproportionately promoted at the young, or rather, we're disproportionately reluctant to promote things to the old. And my argument is there's a lot of new technology. Alexa, for example, or the Amazon um, Connected Home, devices yep. which are disproportionately valuable to the elderly yes i fully agree with you on that one. and yet they're never promoted that way and so you know i, I think i think there's a really interesting there's a really interesting basis for a program which is you know tech for the gray market yes because 
it, the technology is, I mean, no one over 60 you know, who isn't pretty geeky is going to wander into Curry's and go, what have you got, in the, what have you got that's new in the area of uh, cloud-connected um, uh, voice-activated devices, okay? 65-year-olds don't do that. But if you give them an Alexa, they think, it, or, or you give them a Google HomePod, they think it's fantastic, right? And in the same way, by the way, I think when people retire, there's a huge opportunity to get back into gaming. Okay. And I was having a discussion, I was having a discussion with the doctor who was saying that particularly for people whose aging profile might be a little bit around, you know, cognitive deterioration, getting into something like, uh, you know, Red or Dead Redemption 2, uh, okay, would actually be a really, I mean, A, you've got the time again, okay? Yeah. B, B actually, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than skiing. And you're less likely to kill yourself, you know, being absolutely honest. Cheaper than a cruise holiday. And I do know one case. There's one colleague of mine whose dad's about 65. And he goes round to see his dad. And his dad, like, disappears upstairs at 9 o'clock. He goes, where's dad gone? And then suddenly there's his dad upstairs shouting, be careful, they're attacking from the left. <laughs> but but the, the fact that old, older people were once retired don't get back into gaming is probably a complete loss. Will it will that be though the generational thing? So the people who play games today, when they become the next generation of silver surfers, will it be because that that well, it, they it will should, do it? it, 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 it you are right. It should be. My only thing is that you, you know the, the whole thing about oh, television's dead. You know, you always get yes. Yeah. Now, in truth, okay, you know, look, millennials. Then you know, millennials. They're not watching any television at all. You know, I was in sort of you know, I was like eighteen, nineteen in what is it, nineteen eighty. 1988. I didn't watch any television in 1987 because when you're 18, 19, 20, you don't. Okay. To be honest, you get a bit older. Okay. You get a job. Your job becomes a bit more demanding. It doesn't matter what generation you're in. You get home from that job and you sit on a comfy chair and you hit the remote control and you say to the black square on the wall, entertain me. I'm going to sit back and you're going to amuse me and I'm going to put in the minimal amount of interactive effort. You're just going to entertain me. Now, when you, when you get older, my, my contention is that I, the idea that television is dead, there are lean forward media and there are lean back media. Absolutely. And you know, to some extent, the, the shape of technology is all driven by bodily disposition. So if you think about it, okay, a laptop's what you use when you've got a table. Okay, a tablet's what you use when you sprawl on a sofa. A mobile phone is what you use when you're walking about. Depending on how you're, you, you, you've generally deporting yourself at any one time, different technologies serve the purpose. And there's a need for lean back, there's a need for lean back media, and there's a need for lean forward media. You know, sometimes I want to game or be engaged or surf or discover. Sometimes I actually want the passive business of just sitting back and someone telling me a story. If you, if you think about it, there's a brilliant, I, I met a very brilliant Romanian film student the other day who made the whole point about how film, okay, is a story and the director tells you where to look. Right. Computer games are a world where you decide where to look and you explore them at your own time and your own effort in an order of your own devising. Okay. And so he said that the, the business of creating a computer game is creating a world 
and the business creating a, a film is creating a story where there is an, you know a narrative line there's an order and so forth and he made a very interesting point which is he said it, you know at, at the very height the two become a bit closer together so he gave an example just for your gamer listeners that um you know god of war you know has elements of kind of narrative brilliance to it you know, there's a very, very clear story, even though it's a world. And in the same way, the greatest literature, well, not necessarily the greatest, but certain forms of literature, Homer would be a classic case, Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter, James Bond, okay, they create a world. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're a kind of sandbox, aren't they, if you think about it, using yeah. the language of gaming, which is you know, Sherlock Holmes' world, Harry Potter world. There are a couple of others I'm missing, actually. But where you, you, you create sort of a kind of parallel universe with its own kind of rules and norms. And so someone who wasn't J.K. Rowling or, or, or Conan Doyle could make a stab at writing one of those stories. Right. And, you know, I, I'm not sure it would be as good and they, you know, it would be, it would be a sort of act of theft. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Homer, bits of classical literature, bits of epic literature, a bit like that. They create this kind of world. And, I, and so... I think what happens with gaming is that, bluntly speaking, today's millennials will lose the... Na I did, but bear in mind, I was an avid gamer in my uh, late teens and, and, and early 20s. I mean, you know, many was the time, you know, I was up until sort of three o'clock in the morning on Lemmings, for example, or <laughs> Wolfen Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, you know, I really, you know, I really, really enjoy those games. And unfortunately, you have you get married, you have kids, okay, and then your job just becomes more time-consuming, which then prevents you from being any good because you you've got time to do it, but only at a kind of you know half-hearted level. And then you tend to give up entirely. And I think it'd be really good. I'm, I'm going to make an effort to rediscover it in myself as well. This is why I go to twenty-year-olds and go, okay, what, what what's good? Now maybe some of the games will need to be slower you know, train simulator. Um, I'm always very keen on anything submarine related. You know, I always like the idea of sort of, you know, U-boat or, you know, uh, or Cold War kind of nuclear submarine things because the pace is so slow. Right. But, but actually, I, interestingly, watching Red or Dead with my daughter, you've got all those things like Dead Eye, which enable you to slow down action. Because that was one of the things that I think, you know, I, the trouble is, you know, I thought, you know, age 54, you know, if I play this game, you know, I'm going to be comparing myself to people in their 20s whose reactions and motor skills are a notch above my own, so I'm not really going to stand a chance. And it occurred to me, in fact, that, you know, the, the games have, have actually made allowance for this. Did you I'm lose not, your game? No, you lost it. That's what happened. Is you know, middle age got in the way? Mm, not really. What well, I, I played Galaxian in the day, and I played Wolfstein 3D, and I I realised very quickly that one I wasn't wasn't very good at them, and secondly, I tended to play a lot of outdoor sports. So I, I, I've always played rugby. I've done martial arts. So a lot of my I suppose downtime would be in an active sport, and my on time because I'd worked for c computer companies from you know. Day dot. I really didn't want to do more gaming. Gaming's never been something. It's it, gaming is to me the same as golf. Okay, I've never taken to golf. The reason I've never taken to golf and gaming is I always think that they're a time sink, and I don't find that I can devote the time to them 
that will generate the reward in terms of entertainment that I would want? I regret not being into... I've never been into golf, and I've always kind of ridiculed it. One, compared to skiing, it's not a time... Skiing is the real time thing, which is... Yeah, but I feel like you're, at least you're travelling and seeing different yeah, places. Yeah, the only thing with golf is, one, the handicap system means that any group of mates can play together yeah. within reason. Uh, B, you can play pretty much, at, not quite at any age, but I mean, if you're, and C, it obviously keeps you active and gets you in the outdoors. Well, my father's highly sociable. And he's playing golf still. Yeah, now that's a huge, that, that, the one bummer with rugby is, you know, that's not really a game you can play in your 80s. No. And I'm sure there are variants of it, but I wouldn't recommend it, no. to be absolutely honest. And so, you know, I, mean, I think golf, uh, you know, having been slightly sort of um, iffy about it, I think it's got a lot to commend it, in fact. And it's highly sociable as well. So, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, it's a whole bunch of things all wrapped up into one. So it's not, I don't think it's nearly as mad as it first appears. Well, it's the time. I, I went and played a round of golf with my father-in-law because I've got good hand-eye coordination. And, and I played nine holes. And at the end of those nine holes, I said, well, can we just go in? Because it was it taken three hours or whatever to do the nine holes. And for me, any game or sport or time that has taken that long just wasn't, for me, a rewarding use of that the, time. There's a wonderful statistic you can um, advance which makes golf look really kind of crazy, which is, I think, in their entire professional career, someone like Tiger Woods, this is at top-level competition, not while practising, his entire career is determined by something like 1.3 seconds where the club is in contact with the ball. So if you think about it, in each hit, the club is in contact with the ball for an infinitesimally short amount of time. Right. And if you add all those infinitesimally short amounts of times in a player's career together, it really is. It, I mean, it really is. It's something I can't remember, but it's in a matter of seconds, not minutes. Right. Okay, <laughs> where your club is in contact with the ball. So the difference between... Tiger Woods and me, you know, in golf, is accounted for by this ludicrously tiny percentage of your life. Which makes it, you know, if you compare it with rugby, where, of course, yeah. everything you do all the time in the 80 minutes kind of has an effect, golf is particularly bonkers. It, well, it is bonkers anyway, but yes. Now, look, going back, to, going back to what you were saying, one of the things in the book that I want to try and understand is how did you first get into this whole space of behavioral marketing? Because literally what you're saying, if I get the book right, is that, you know, for example, we, we try and apply logic to everything, but there isn't always a logical reasoning, right? And so, and sometimes the greatest innovations, the greatest insights, or the greatest changes come from when we aren't trying to be logical, when well, we have downtime. Well, Tim Harford is a very good economist and writer on economics. He said to me, he said, you advertising people, he goes, I don't understand why you have such difficulty selling the importance of advertising and marketing. And I said, well, why? He said, because Every time someone challenges you, you've got a one-word answer, which is Apple, okay? Which is Jobs was a marketer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, he was you know, not a narrow marketer in the sense of, you know, but, but first of all, he was the first person who realized that actually look and feel and typography 
and aesthetics mattered in computing. And he, I think he slightly exaggerates the influence of this, but he always claims that when he was a student, he wandered into a course on calligraphy, I think it was, wasn't it? it might have been typography, and it sort of changed his life. This one course which he attended, one lecture, sorry, which he attended by accident changed his life. And he was the first person in IT to go, I, I mean, effectively, if these things actually look nice, it would be better. Okay. Right. Now, bear in mind, in the tech world, everything is about objective qualification. You know, engineers are obsessed with objectivity. Now, there's a reason for that, because to solve engineering problems, to solve physics problems, to solve problems which are entirely psychology-free, you use SI units. You know, you use weight, distance, you know, clock speed, etc. And so everybody in IT was basically going, what's really important is what this mobile phone handset or what this laptop can do. You know, what's its memory capacity? What's its clock speed? Da, da, da. What's its specification? And Jobs asked a different question, which was a question far closer to the end user, and therefore far closer to the customer, which was to say, no, 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 it's not what this thing can do. It's what it feels like while you're doing it. And he essentially looked at maximizing the... the he treated the placebo element, the psychological element, as an additive, not a subtractive right. thing. And he created a company worth pretty much, you know, on a good day, a trillion dollars. And I was, interestingly, with a bunch of people from Nokia on the day that the iPhone came out. And they had their objective ideas of what was necessary in a phone, and they couldn't really get their heads around the iPhone. They were going, well, it's ridiculous because... The battery life is so poor, it doesn't even last you to the end of the day. But in a sense, you know, not a totally crazy objection. But people love the iPhone so much, they found a workaround for the objective things it didn't do so well. Yes. And, you know, the iPhone, I mean, uh, bear in mind that absolute tech purists hate Apple products because they argue that they generally don't have objective technological leadership. You know, it's always design, as if that's cheating. You know, that's a bit like saying, yeah, yeah, okay, so the chair, it's not very strong. It only supports, you know, a half a ton rather than a ton, but it's comfortable, okay? <laughs> the, you, know, you know what I mean? In chair design, you know, when we design a door handle, we design it around the shape of the evolved human body. And when we design an experience, we should design it around the evolved shape of the human mind and if the human mind the monkey brain finds scrolling something or expanding something lovely and enjoyable right whereas it finds clicking things unpleasant then we shouldn't discount that because that's like saying no no the definition of a good chair is that it can support a certain amount of weight okay yeah. Right? That's how an engineer would design a chair. And, he, uh, and an engineer would go, oh, so people like those chairs over there because they're comfortable. You know, as if this is a kind of completely irrelevant um, component of chair design, right? Although you might argue, you know, in the extremes of Danish chair design, I think comfort does probably take a, its sculpture at that level, right? Yeah. And so, so the, the, this is absurd, okay? It's utterly ridiculous because if your end purpose is psychological, in other words, you're designing around the consumer and what matters, value does not only reside in the product, it resides in the perception of the product and it's a multiplicative effect. And the Austrian School of Economics understood this. You know, they said that the only definition of value is the fact that a free agent is willing to pay for whatever you offer. 
Their reasons don't matter. Whether they're paying for an objective quality like battery life or a subjective quality like mmm, okay, that doesn't matter, okay? Because that's value is, is, is only manifested in the behavior of someone doing something rather than not doing it. And that the human epistemology and human psychology determines the behavior. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? You don't need that when you're designing a Boeing 7. Well, you, do, you need it when you design the interior of a Boeing 787. You design the seats of a Boeing 787 and so forth. And there's quite a bit of psychology, by the way, in the Dreamliner. They make the vestibule of the plane unnecessarily big because if your first impression of the plane going in is airier than you expect, that carries through into your whole experience of the aircraft. Right. Okay, so uh, the lighting, of course, is heavily psychological. You know, the windows, etc., etc. But if you want to design a plane that flies, that's a psychology-free uh, exercise, and you can do it using physics and computer models of, of wind flow and lift and so forth. Uh, if you're designing the customer experience, or, of course, equally important, if you're designing the cockpit, okay, the cockpit layout, that's now psychological. And there's a huge amount of psychology, of course, in, in things like cockpit design. And um, there's a whole discipline called CRM, which is cockpit resource management, which is all around the psychology of decision-making at the front of the plane. Right. And my argument is very simple, which is that in an attempt to make ourselves look objective for purposes of defending our decisions, whether we're making our decision in a business or making our decision in government or in the public sector, in any institutional setting, we pretend as far as we possibly can that this is a physics problem. Because by making it a physics problem, you make it a problem you can solve mathematically. And if you've solved it mathematically, no one's going to attack you because you've justified your decision. So you're not going to get fired if things go wrong. Right? Yeah. So you've arse covered yourself by pretending it's not a psychological problem. In the same way that the, you know, the, the pharmaceutical company arse covers itself by proving to the regulator that, no, 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 it's not the placebo effect. It's all to do with this chemical we've discovered, okay? And my friend is, look, look, you're there. You're utterly blinding yourself to what the ultimate aim of what you're trying to do is. And so Steve, um, Tim Harford's point about Steve Jobs was that, look, the most valuable company in the world, I'd also say to a large extent with Amazon. Yeah. That the, you know, uh, no, it doesn't actually make any money, Amazon. It's a bit weird. So a lot of that is to do with uh, investor psychology, to be honest. But there's something very strange going on there, which is that Uber, I think, you know, a very, very large part of the success of Uber is the, the psychology of the map. That I, it, what it did is it removed the pain and friction points that previously existed around ordering a cab, a large part of which being the uncertainty of waiting. Yeah. Um, some of it being expectation management. So when you go on Uber, it gives you a rough time estimate. And if it says it's going to be 12 minutes from Uber Lux, and then you book the thing and it's actually nine, you go, oh, that's better than I expected. Okay, so you know all those kind of things are taken care of mentally. The awkwardness of fiddling around with payment is taken care of. So you know, Uber is very largely a psychological success story. What happens, though, when you have a company that's successful for psychological reasons is that the Harvard Business Review will write it all up as if the only thing that matters in a company is the kind of McKinsey things. Like, you know, no, no, it's successful because of its superior supply chain management. And so, again, the psychological aspect of business success is completely downplayed. I mean, Dyson, right? Okay, 
I mean, for heaven's sake, right? If you look at it objectively, Dyson, no sane person would have done that. If you come to me, you know, I'm, I'm about as marketing-friendly a guy as you could find. And, I, you know, I'm also an optimist who can see possibilities. If you said to me, there's a market for a £500 vacuum cleaner, I would have gone, look, James, mate, don't give up the day job. The day job was making those ball barrows, wasn't it, with the time? Okay. Because I would have said, look, first of all, all rational arguments, you know, it's a distress purchase of vacuum cleaner. You only buy one when your old one breaks down. It's a grudge purchase. You buy a brand you can just about accept with a few little added extras, and then you grudgingly go home. Besides, I would have said, anybody who can afford a 500-pound vacuum cleaner probably has a cleaner at home, so they don't actually do the hoovering themselves anyway. Right. So basically, Jim, mate, you're onto a hiding to nothing. And as for your 400 quid hairdryer, now come on, you're having a laugh, right? And yet these things are really successful. Yes. And you can't. And James being an engineer is always going on about the, the, the banglessness and the fact that it doesn't lose suction. Sorry, it's not really about that, right? If you'd produced bagless, not losing suction vacuum cleaners for 500 quid and you'd made them beige, right, and opaque, no one would have bought the bloody things. You know, in the same way that you could have had a version of the iPhone which had exactly the same clock speed, memory capacity, battery life, and if you'd made the typeface Comic Sans, right, nobody would have... Well, actually, I, I, actually, I might do that stuff. Irony. That would be quite amusing, wouldn't it, to change that? But, you know, if you made the typeface really fucking clunky, okay, yeah. no one would have bought the thing. Yeah. It's all Marlo. right, I can edit. You can edit that out. Okay, fine. Yeah. I've got to remember it's Marlowe. It's not my usual rough milieu, you know. <laughs> A big shout-out, by the way, to Deal Radio listeners, because I know you're syndicated there. Yes. And I've got, got a little tiny little flattened deal, uh, which is kind of bolt hole, which is where I wrote most of the book. So a big thank you to anyone listening in Deal because it was thanks to their wonderful ministrations and fine cafes and restaurants that I got the book finished at all. <laughs> well, there you go. Deal will be very happy. No, absolutely. Good shout now, out. So one of the questions I've got is, you're talking about Dyson, is, okay, so it's, a, it's an overpriced... Uh, what ooh, differentiated... Ooh, ooh. Oh, no, no, we can't say overpriced. Because well, it is compared to a... Willingly. Okay, in my, it's in my exactly pre premium price. Okay, yeah. okay. Premium price. And its differentiator was that it was bagless, right? That was its marketing differentiator. Is and of course, a... yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a few other things. I mean, the transparency is irrelevant. Baglessness and not losing suction were what you might call the functional attributes. Right. Yeah. But is that why? I mean, I understand why people bought Apple products. They were aesthetically designed, good on the eye. Feature and function match were not there, but then Jobs was a, a master at selling what was there and not selling yeah. what wasn't there, right? Never forget, it wasn't just Nokia who were kind of dissing Jobs. People within Apple dissed Jobs. So there's a wonderful quote where someone says, what does, I don't know what Steve, this is an Apple employee, okay, mm. and a senior engineer. I don't get what Steve actually does. I mean, he can't even code, right? So, you know, so it was it, even within his own organization, his alchemical skills were viewed with suspicion, not with gratitude. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs famously patterned these, the transparent staircases in all of the Apple stores, right? He sacked the man who did it originally. So if you read Walter Isaacson's book, one of the fascinating things was he had a hangar on campus where they built the internal Apple store, the first one. 
and he looked at it, he went in and he literally threw the guy out, started it himself again. Cause he, it was, it was that experience of walking into the Apple store is what he wanted. And the guy who originally designed it had designed it more like a Tesco's in the sense of go in and buy stuff. And Steve Jobs was no, it's not about the buying. It's about the experience. And so he came up with that transparent staircase and the angle of it. And he's still got the patent on that. So, yes. So I understand Apple, right? What do you think, though? How did Dyson sell? Because it can't just be it was a better sucking bagless. Was or was that it? Are we that so small minded? It was the fact that it looked fantastic. Um, so it was I, the aesthetic. I, I, also, don't forget, there's a psychological thing, which is by having it transparent, you can see the dirt you're removing from the carpet which okay. arguably is a feedback mechanism which makes the act of hoovering more rewarding, okay? It's a really interesting question, this, because I've also got a bit of a theory which economists would basically vomit. They, they, they do a little bit of mouth sick if I mention this, which is that, put very bluntly, you don't get an endorphin rush from mid-market purchases, okay? Yeah. You get a thrill from TK Maxx, so shout out to the Marlowe TK Maxx enthusiasts community, okay? Uh, because a bargain, it gives you a bit of a thrill because you feel clever and you feel rewarded, okay? And you come out of TK Maxx, you get, shit, I've got this bloody Ralph Lauren polo shirt, probably 25 quid, right? And uh, that would have cost me a hundred and something or other, okay? You feel a bit excited, yeah. Likewise, Bista Village, right? You yes. get a bit of a thrill, yep. okay? I think it's, is, is it my right to say Bista Village is now the number one tourist destination in the UK. It might be number two to something like Buckingham Palace, but, but yeah, every every yeah. Chinese tourist is bussed up there. Every Japanese tourist is bussed there. It's bussed there. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit local to you, isn't it? It's your, that, yeah, yeah, that's your, yeah, yeah, that's oh yeah. You see, I'm tailoring this right to local audience. <laughs> Thank you very right. much. Okay, but but the the interesting thing there is that um, you get a thrill from that. To be honest, we get a bit of a guilty thrill if we buy a full-price Canada goose, whatever it is, because it's a guilty pleasure. Okay? If you buy something in the middle and it's not a bargain and it's not a treat, you know, it's Valentine's Day today, uh, don't tell my wife who's outside, but you know, there's a little Fortnum's package arriving you know, in its box with the Fortnum's logo printed on the inside of the cardboard box in which it arrives. All that kind of bling stuff, okay? We kind of love it, let's be honest, you know, we're like, you know, you know, we're like a dog being tickled in its tummy when we open the box and there's this gratuitous kind of additional attention added. And my argument is always that, look, you've got, you've got, oh shit, the old vacuum cleaner's broken. Let's go and get a new vacuum cleaner. You go, well, let's, we can either spend 200 quid and basically have the same vacuum cleaner we had before, which I won't even notice. It'll be kind of boring, you know, and it's just like, you know. And on the other hand, I could spend 400 quid and I can get something that actually makes me excited. You know, it's a bit new. It's a bit, you know, it, out, it looks cool. It. I can get it out. I can have it, she have it, you know. And, I mean, I had the same experience. I was buying bedding with my wife. I always tell this story. And I eventually, after wandering around looking at bedding, I said, can we make a deal here? And she said, what? You know, suspicious as ever. I said, can we either spend nothing or a lot? Well, that doesn't make any sense. I said, no, no, look, look, look. I'm kind of happy with our existing bedding, right? If we go and spend 200 quid and we end up with bedding that's like our existing bedding, well, I've spent 200 quid on something I won't even notice, right? What's the point of that? 
if we spend nothing, I can go and spend 200 quid on a drone or something, right? Okay. On the other hand, if we spend a lot, I can get nerdily excited by thread counts, Egyptian cotton, Oxford pillowcases, mattress toppers, tog values, and I can actually make this a bit of a project from which I derive significant incremental pleasure. And the very simplest, you know, M&S clothing is mid-market, M&S food is upmarket, right? Yes. We get a kind of thrill from M&S food, and we don't really get a thrill from M&S clothing. You know, there are certain categories like tights and underpants, you know, until recently, you know, as a bloke, you know, if you didn't wear M&S underpants, you're probably a bit of a perv, you know. Right. You know mainstream things like underpants and, uh, and, and hosiery, yeah, M&S serve the functional purpose, but someone who was going to a wedding probably wouldn't have gone there because it didn't have that sense of thrill, which a trip to you know, insert female clothing retailer here might give you. And so with Dyson thing, by the way, what I'm talking about chimes, I think, quite well with a guy called Kano, who was a Japanese academic, still alive. He was at the University of Tokyo, and he was a huge advisor to the Japanese consumer electronics industry in the 80s. And Carno, the wonderful thing called the Carno theory, posits that, and this is very similar to my, okay, you know, there's basic level utilitarian functional. Now, in the vacuum cleaner category, by the way, there's a brand that does that brilliantly, which is Henry. Yes. Right? Yep. If you, if you go to a restaurant where, you know, vacuum cleaning is, you know, is a kind of industrial process, they'll have a Henry. And the Henry's a really, really good vacuum cleaner. It's got lots and lots of functional attributes, right? I've got a Henry. I've also got a Dyson, okay? You know, that's a bit like TK Maxx, you know? <laughs> you know. Now, and by the way, with the TK Maxx thing, I spoke to someone whose wife the other day, and this is just to give you a clear idea of the endorphin rush you get from a bargain. His wife is a director of a large high street bank in the UK. To his annoyance, when they go on holiday she insists on going first class at their own expense. But when she buys clothes, she goes to TK Maxx. Very interesting thing about TK Maxx and Argos, which I always love to um, trot out, the consumer profile of TK Maxx and Argos is basically representative of the whole UK population. It's not upmarket, not downmarket, not rich, not poor, not male, not female. And I think the reason is it's something you either get it or you don't. It's an entirely different, it's not a demographic thing at all. It's, you know, there are people who've essentially hacked the code of TK Maxx and there are people who just go, I don't understand, you know. And, you know, you're either one or the other. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Now, Carno, just to get back to this Carno theory, he draws a graph with three lines on it, effectively. And there's a line that goes up quite dramatically and then flattens off. And that, those are what's called, um, I think they're called threshold attributes. I hope I'm remembering this right. Those are table stakes. Now, that means that the product is not shit at what it does. So if you're buying a brand of milk, for example, and the carton leaked, okay, and then you bought the brand a second time and the carton leaked again, you'd never buy that milk again, right? Now, nobody goes, ooh, I love this brand of milk because the carton doesn't leak. It doesn't create any delight. But the absence of that thing, i.e. acceptable packaging, okay, in the absence of acceptable milk packaging, you're not even in the, you're not even a contender, 
right? That's what you have to do. It's not going to create any happiness, but you have to do it. Then there's a thing which is a, a straight line from left to right, which is called a performance attribute. And that is how well the thing does the thing it's supposed to do. And that would be not, you know, suction power in a vacuum cleaner. Okay. If you were buying a cassette deck in the 1980s, it would be sound quality, build quality, battery life. You know, and the better you are those things, the more the consumer likes the thing. But it's not, it's, it, it's a linear relationship. Right? There's, there's no magic there because it's linear. The better your sound reproduction, the better you are as a cassette deck. Then there's a thing called a delight attribute where it's non-linear. It goes up and then it rockets up towards the right in terms of customer satisfaction. Now, the delight attribute is interesting because it's often an aspect of the product which is surprisingly peripheral to the central function of the product itself. And to give an example, with the 1980s cassette deck, it's the eject mechanism. You're, you're just about old enough to remember this. I'm the same age as you, Rory. You're the same age as me. So in the 1980s, DVD player for younger people. I don't know what the comparison is for millennials. I can't think of anything. I mean, an example of a delight attribute would be in a car. Now, you see, most cars do this now. But it, about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I saw a talk by Seymour Powell, the design firm. And they pointed out that BMWs, when you close the door on a BMW, the light didn't go out. It dimmed gradually to nothingness, you see. And as Seymour Powell pointed out, um, this created almost, you know, when you got into your car, it was almost like the start of a theatrical performance. It was just, doom, the light level went down, as opposed to your clunky, crappy car, where it basically went off like that. And, and, and the equivalent in cassette deck design was if you pressed eject and it kind of, a counterbalanced pneumatic hydraulic mechanism kind of hissed outwards in a glorious way. You know, that was a great cassette deck, okay? Whereas if you just pressed eject and went clack, that was manifestly a piece of shit and you didn't really want it, okay? Press eject, it goes clack, crack. DVD, you know, the whole the, the whole drawer would come out in some pervy way and yeah. kind of, you know, a, you know, a flap would fold down, you know, a bit like the sort of launch of Thunderbirds 2, you know, there was this whole amount of shit going on. And, um, oh, no, I've done that again. Anyway, sorry, Marlo. Um, anyway, what's fascinating about that is that those things disproportionately appeal to our monkey brain. Now, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about this, because some of your listeners might be on the Chiltern line, aren't you? Which, which is a yes. weird railway line, which people pervily like to a level beyond which is healthy. You know, normally, people go, bloody on network, these southern trains. And if you mention the Chiltern line, people go into this sort of soppy little puppy dog thing. Now, one of the reasons I suspect you love the Chiltern line is because Marlborough Station is a bit like the eject mechanism on the 1980s upmarket cassette deck. You know, it used to have, is the speciality cheese shop still there? Or did that close I don't down? know. I don't go into that. I go into Paddington. Oh, oh you're going to Paddington? Oh, dear, yeah. dear, dear, yeah. Of course, you're going to benefit from Crossrail, aren't you, you lucky bastards? No, yeah. we're not going to benefit. It's coming in already, and there are massive complaints because... What? We really don't have long enough on this show, but okay, okay. <laughs> no, Crossrail or the Lizzie line, as it's been termed, it, it, they've really GWR and Crossrail have really screwed it up because it was supposed to be a fast, quick line into London through central London onto Canary Wharf for the stockbrokers. Yeah, and they've turned it into a tube line which stops at every slow station along the way and. It's just uncomfortable, 
And in your book, you gave an example of, you know, if they put seats in the middle and lap tray edges, you know, where you could put your lap tray, uh, laptop. Yeah, no, 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 They've got no USB ports on it. They've got no electric sockets on it. It's just been wait, wait, wait more, wait more. There are no toilets. Yeah. Now, I, now I've totally ruined this because I, I suggested that there was a news article saying from Shenfield to bloody Reading is going to be like two and a half hours and there's no toilet. And we're both 54, right? We're not going to make that, are we? No way, <laughs> right? Okay, I on my latte anyway. There are toilets on the platform at one of the stations, so I may need to tell your listeners about that, so they can get out, have a pee break, and then continue their journey. A bit like Everest Base Camp, you know, you'll have to break your journey. Now, the thing I suggested was that knowing there are no toilets is a disaster because now I know there are no toilets on the bloody train. I'll want to go. And I suggested you should have Potemkin toilets, where you pretend there are toilets on the train, even though there aren't, because they were less likely to want to pee. But once you're 54 and you know, the reason you go to the loo so often when you're in your 50s, I suddenly realised this. It's not so much that you need to go to the loo much more often, okay? But bladder control is a bit more of an issue in your 50s, okay? I hope I'm hitting a Marlowe demographic here. <laughs> but the reason you go to the loo... The reason you have to go to the loo so often when you get older is because I can sit at home now, okay, knowing there's a loo around the corner, Japanese one actually, shower, you know, shower toilet, cleans your best product I've bought in the last four years, best bit of technology I've bought in years, literally. Okay. okay? Uh, you know, because loo paper's barbaric, I've made this point before. Um, um, but the knowing there's a loo around the corner, I, I can go for hours here at home without going to the loo. When I'm travelling, I have to go to the loo every time I see, see a loo. And I realise that's because I don't know when I'll get a chance again. And so when you're 50s, you become obsessed with toilets because you have to take every possible opportunity you can to use one because the provision is so unreliable and random if you're travelling or making a journey. If you're going on a train, I basically, before I embark on a train journey, I leave the office and I have a pee before I leave the office because I know I don't know when I'm getting another chance. And that's why you go so frequently. It's simply, it's not a question about actually not necessarily having the length of bladder capacity. It's because the, the, the environment is so badly designed in terms of toilet provision that you've got to always spend your life assuming the worst. So to take your example earlier where you said about waiting queues and times, if you had a map of every toilet on your journey, you would then have less worry. Yes, oh, completely. Now, funnily enough, do you know that is one of the biggest, this is a weird anecdote, the, the single biggest complaint of German tourists visiting London was that there were no toilet maps. <laughs> now, I think Germans may find it more different. Germans may not understand the basic principle, which is you can use a pub, okay? Yes. Which I think that may actually be legally enshrined, I'm not sure. But I've got a vague idea that you are entitled to use a pub's toilets without buying a drink, and Germans may not realise that pertains. But no, Ger German cities apparently have toilet maps, and without that... But the provision of toilets, the new London Bridge Station, there are no non-accessible, which is what disabled toilets now mm -hmm. called, pretty woke there. You know. Well done, the, yes. the use of the phrase accessible toilet, which is a good, which is a good coinage, does create confusion, because... They started announcing on my train, we, we wish to apologise to customers that there are no accessible toilets on the train. I thought, oh, so there's no toilet on the train. 
you know, I assumed that it meant that they were both locked. I, in other words, both right. toilets were now inaccessible, either by dint of being locked or because they were on the roof or something, right? It took me a year before I realized what that meant was the disabled loo was out of order, but the other one was still fine. Right. So when you design a new coinage, you have to think of what the negative conveys, because this created total bafflement in me for a while. But getting back to the Kano theory thing, St. Pancras Station has delight attributes, you know, the champagne bar, you know, you know all, all those things. When they, they spent half a billion on that, what most people remember from the launch campaign is it had the longest champagne bar in Europe. You know, the Chilton line has patently has something about it which really delights people. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but people seem to really, the really like it. The directors of the railway line live along the line. Skin in the game. Exactly. That's why you get great Vodafone coverage around Newbury, isn't it? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the, the Chiltern line is well known because all the directors of the company live along and use it to get into work. This is extraordinary. It really is that simple, isn't it? Yeah. Eat your own dog food. It really is that. But also, I think Marlebone Station is a bit of a boutique station, isn't it? Yes. Which I think increases your effect, affection for the thing because you feel part of a kind of special little group with your own little private station. You know, I must admit, I have, coming from the southeast, I have an absolute love affair with Charing Cross because you've got this station which is, you can see the bloody National Gallery from the front of the station. You know, all the other ones are dumping you somewhere fairly irrelevant. And here you've got Charing Cross, which is this little six-platform uh, thing. But, but, I mean, it's really interesting because London Bridge Station... They spent a billion quid on it, and they, they've done the performance attributes. You know, they, I'm not sure, by the way. There are some missing, what you might call, entry-level attributes, in that the provision of loos is totally inadequate, and there's a stupid line of barriers, of gates in the middle. So once you've gone through the ticket gates, you can't have a pee, okay, unless you've got one of those disabled radar keys, okay. which you can buy on eBay, but I didn't tell you that, okay? Um, uh, right, didn't hear it from me. Got that. Um, and so, so the whole thing's a bit of a, you know, but what they haven't done is they spent a billion quid, but they've forgotten, because it's psychological, right? They've forgotten to put the cherry on the cake. Now, what I would have done if you give me London Bridge Station, I would have said, okay, get rid of these four annoying factors. Let's have a few toilets. Can we actually have some fucking seating, please? Because, oh, God, I've done it again, sorry. Um, Marlo, this is the most swearing Marlowe's experienced in the entire history of the time, isn't it? There will be, um, there will be the but, uh, people falling off their chairs now. Sorry. No, no, but, but literally, there's a, there's a billion pounds spent on a station and waiting for a train last night at 20 past midnight, people were sitting on a metal bar on the ground, right? Well, that's how crap it is, right? Now, and secondly, what I would have done is I would have said, right, what we're going to do with London Bridge Station is we're going to provide a little focus for people to love. And we're going to get rid of, we're going to have one less Oliver bonus. And we're going to have one less paper chase. And we're going to give rent free to retail outlets. And you've got to be London's biggest florist. Okay. And your job is to stay open for, you know, I don't know. 12 hours of the day until 11 o'clock at night, and you've got to have a massive display of flowers in the forecourt. So when people say, what do you think about the new London Bridge Station? They can say, I really love the florist. Right? Now, you might be losing a bit of money, but the point is you've given people now a means by which they can love the station. Yes. Right? 
Which is what the longest um, bar did, apparently. Which is what, which is what the... I mean, it's a stupid claim to fame. I, I always joke about this. You know, nobody goes, you know, I'm thinking of going to a champagne bar. Do you know any long ones? You know, Tottenham it's, it's Hotspur with a new, new football ground did exactly the same thing. What, what have they got? The world's longest beer bar. Oh, okay. That's I'm a Spurs fan now. That's completely converted me. Uh, that is brilliant. I'm not really into football, but I am now, and that is brilliant. The world's long, longest bit. You see, they've got it. They're absolutely understood. Now, the reason for that is that that's the monkey brain cares about shit like Europe's longest champagne bar. It doesn't care about things like architraves and through and passenger throughput. Yeah. Now, the thing about those Carnot theory delight attributes, right? is if you run slightly over budget, they're the first thing an accountant kills. Yes. Yeah. The first thing an accountant would kill if you're running over budget with your 1980s cassette deck would be, do we need to spend so much on the eject mechanism? You know, is that really necessary? You know, uh, you know, with Dyson, if you had an accountant, this is why the entrepreneur is such an essential figure, because the entrepreneur has a different set of priorities and values to mainstream businesses Partly because he doesn't have to defend himself to 27 accountants, okay? He is free to deploy resources in his own whimsical and interesting and differentiated way. Whereas businesses, which are under the grip of kind of rational delusion. I mean, I bet, for example, you know, if Dyson hadn't been the kind of independent entrepreneur he is, it's still family owned, isn't it? I believe so, yes. And he's made yeah, if you made that a PLC, thing. what would happen, okay, is loads of bloody accountants start crawling. It happened to the advertising industry, basically, you know. It got taken over by accountants, and they made things a lot better, to be honest, because there was a lot of waste. And a lot, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not some sort of weird idealist who thinks that everybody should be free to go crazy. You know, they trimmed a lot of the completely unnecessary fat in the advertising industry. And then the tragedy was, instead of pissing off and saying, job done, they kept on doing it to a point where actually you also started stripping out the, you know, the champagne bar and the florist, and, you know, and stripping out the longest beer bar in Europe. And, the, and, and the, the whole point about the ad industry was that it had this level of, kind of you know, necessary inefficiency to it. Yeah. Okay, can I ask you a couple yeah. of quick questions there? The first one is, is so I understand all about adding, you know, the, the, the magic to products, making the experience. So why doesn't a, a totally electric, sorry, automatic Hoover work? You know, one of those that just self-cleans, that runs around the floor on its own, right? Why oh, oh, I know it's super that. expensive? They do a function that none of us want to do, which is to hoover. And yet nobody seems that I know, and I'm the biggest techie in the world. I would love to buy one, except I can't self-justify £960 for a hoover. That probably doesn't work very well, but does everything. So why, I, I, why doesn't it I work? Think, I think the issue is moving parts. And the, the very important part, there's a wonderful, wonderful company, which I always plug, and they're called Owl Laboratories, and they make a video conferencing piece of equipment, which is about 900 quid. It's a business tool. But actually, that's quite cheap for, for a very, very good video cam and speaker in the business context. And it's AI-driven so that it's got an array of eight-directional microphones and the camera, which is a 360-degree camera, on the top of the owl's head. It's called the meeting owl zooms in on whoever's talking. And if two or three people are talking, it does something even cleverer. It creates a split screen kind of triptych and it actually 
zooms in on all three of them. So you have dynamic camera work from a camera on the center of the table, which is zooming around the various participants. It also allows the meeting to take place in a circle, which is how meetings naturally happen, rather than forcing everybody to sit as if they're on a bus, all facing the same way. Brilliant, brilliant bit of tech. And I, I evangelize for this because I think it's a piece of anthropological technology, you know. And the people who founded this, the, the, the scientists, were previously at iRobot, makers of the Roomba. And they said, we know an awful lot about AI and we know a lot about machine learning. And we also know a third thing, which is the next product we work on isn't going to have any moving parts. Because the, my fear is with any of those things, which is... Uh, they're really, really artificially intelligent up to the moment when they decide to swallow a cotton reel, at which point all bets are off. Right. And my, my thought is with things like, you know, vacuum cleaners, I'm a bit weird on the self-driving car thing as well. I'm a bit kind of 50-50 on that. Partly because, I, I mean, one of the, there are a whole load of aspects to it which strike me as, you know, fundamentally a bit strange. You can make driving a lot less frustrating and a hell of a lot safer with some fairly basic tech. And the most important thing, I would argue, is putting crash detection and BP things on uh, existing cars. So when I bought my wife's car, which was secondhand, the first thing I said is, does it beep when you reverse? And that if you're close to an object, can you add that as a, you know, uh, a, a, as a, a later addition? Yeah. A retro, can you retrofit it? Yep, it's 300 quid. I said, do it straight away. Because A, it pays for itself. Because if you don't fit it, you're going to reverse into something and, you know, uh, in the next four years anyway, and B, that's not even accounting for the risk of running over dog, child, you know, whatever it may be, okay? So fitting those things as standard is a more important focus, I would argue, in terms of the gains per pound than going for the full level five driverless car. Making, you know, making motor, funnily enough, adaptive cruise control, once you learn to use it, is an extraordinary piece of progress because it makes long motorway journeys very easy because you, it automatically follows the car in front. And what you learn to do with adaptive cruise control is you find a pretty sane driver. It, typically it's someone in like a Merc or a Range Rover or a Jag, not an Audi driver, never follow an Audi driver. <laughs> They're a total tailgate. I realize I've offended half the population of Marla at this point, but Audi drivers are inveterate tailgaters and therefore they'll always be braking violently because they're, you know, obsessed with being really close to the car in front. Find a sane driver who's going at the kind of speed that you want to go, latch onto him, you basically just follow the guy, and half the decisions are taken out of your mind. You don't even have to worry about speed cameras because he slows down, you slow down. So an awful lot of the gains can come from relatively you know, pre-existing technologies and you can continue to enhance those. The, the ability to have cars that drive around with nobody in them, I accept the fact that there is the gain that you can then theoretically read a book, you know, read a newspaper, get on with work while you're being driven around, and that is a thing. There are a whole load of safety concerns I have about that, um, which is that what happens is that if the, if the machine can't cope, it will suddenly throw the problem at the driver when he's least expecting it. Yes. And there's, you know, there's a fundamental problem with autopilot disengaging with pilots because the pilots, they're probably looking at his iPad or whatever pilots do. The cockpit doors are closed now. We haven't got a clue yeah. what they do. To be honest, but he's probably watching, you know, 
I'm probably playing Dead or Dead Redemption 2 on the in-cockpit PlayStation, for all I know. But whatever he's doing, suddenly the plane throws this massive problem at him. And it's, you know, it's unfair to call that pilot error. It, it, it's, in fact, it's technological dereliction of duty, really. Yeah. And the same thing would happen with drivers. I'm also, by the way, a very simple fact, a driverless car is basically a cruise missile on wheels for any terrorist who wants to uh, uh, use it. You know, you can pack a car full of explosives and send it into the middle of the town empty. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's, let's be absolutely candid about that. That is not a funny prospect, right? You know, at least suicide bombers have to actually commit suicide, right? Yeah. You know, I don't want 17 people on the outskirts of London, you know, loading up cars with things. So there are a whole load of problems there, which I think, I, I think the naive people in Silicon Valley who enjoy... The other thing is that good driverless cars, or at least, you know, good, a large amount of automation of driving should involve road furniture. You know, it might involve metal strips placed along the road, specially designed road signage that can be easily machine read. Silicon Valley's obsession with not having anything to do with government because they want to create a monopoly means they're trying to solve the problem exclusively within the confines of the car, which seems to be making the problem more difficult to solve. Yeah, I mean, I've always argued that, you know, road signs, if they had more intelligent data giving off, you know, with augmented reality in cars now, you could, you know, the sign would be much more informative if you get no past. I mean, I've got a heads-up display already in my Th car. There are, by the way, cars which obey the speed limit because they read road signs. Now, yeah. there's a problem there, which is your local neighbourhood busybody who's obsessed with the fact that the traffic through Marlowe is going far too fast, right, is going to erect a big red circle in their garden with 15 on it. Okay? So you could hack that. You know, the local neighbourhood watch fanatic, okay, or the local road safety fanatic, you know, could effectively, in your garden, you put up a basically a fake road speed sign. And, well, the traffic through Marlowe is only going at three miles an hour anyway, isn't it? Probably. Because you have that bottleneck yep. on that bridge. So, you know, sorry, so by saying 15 miles an hour to your audience, that's actually a white-knuckle ride if you live in Marlowe, <laughs> isn't it? That's, that's high thrills excitement. Exactly. But, get over uh, that bridge that quick. Get over that bridge, yeah, exactly, yeah. So my point, point though, is, I'm taking the piss. By the way, it's a gorgeous town. I mean, I really love you. the town. So sorry, yeah, yeah. My, my my point was, why doesn't the rumba vacuum work? Does it require a Steve Jobs or a Dyson to to put their brain? So going back to what you do, okay. So I'm trying to bring it back to the fact that in coming to see Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy with your behavioural science, you know, practice somebody say okay Rory look we've got this thing it's the rumba it, it's a brilliant piece of technological design why can't we sell more of them what is it what is that psychological part rather than the logical part that we have to apply to make this device the device I, I don't fully know I mean I think a bit of it is by the way because they're quite small and they're low we assume they're less powerful okay I think there's a fundamental problem there, which is we don't think they're doing as good a job of vacuuming the floor. Yeah. And by the way, they're probably not. So let, you know, let's be honest there. There may be there, and if you look at Carnot theory, there may be a fundamental flaw, which is that, in fact, they're not doing that great a job of vacuuming. And I don't know that, and I need to be reassured, but that will be, you know, that might be area number one. Two, there may be a bit of too clever by half about it, which is that you suspect something's going to go wrong. 
you know, and you, you know, that, that or it will attack your cat or something like that. I, I don't know. A very interesting question because what is interesting about it and what you have spotted is that the obstacle to adoption, which I'll be I'll be candid with you, I don't know yet, and, I, and then you've given me something to think about there, but it's psychological, not economic. All right. You know, you, as you said, you, you're the most techie person you, could, you know, you're totally obsessed. You would happily spend quite a large amount of money, actually, but for some reason you can't bring yourself to do it. And you know, that would have interesting parallels in lots and lots of things I noticed. Well, video conferencing, the adoption of video conferencing, all the logical arguments are in favor of it. It's either free or insanely cheap. Businesses should have changed the design of their offices and fundamentally changed the way they work in response to the invention of this technology. And yet there are still people, well, I mean, there are still people, okay, getting on a train at eight o'clock in the morning, which is hugely crowded, traveling into an office to do email for the first two hours in their office. And I go, I go to my colleagues and say, don't do that. I said, look, do the email at home when you first get up. That way you'll do it an hour and a half earlier. Then at nine o'clock, travel into work. You're now traveling into work on an empty train, which means you can also work on the train. When you get into the office, you've done your email. There's no point in doing, going to an office to do email. Your screen's the same wherever you are on the planet. Exactly. Right? Then when you get into the office, talk to people, because that's what the office is for. Exactly. You, you know, but equally, equally, maybe if you've got a meeting, have the meeting at eight o'clock in the morning. Okay, which we're kind of doing now on a Friday yeah. at nine o'clock in the morning. Okay, do it then, right? Break, um, do it by video, then travel in later. You gain this extraordinary freedom of location through technology. Use it. Don't don't travel in like an 18th century shipping clerk, you know, who catches the 742 train every single day, because. Technology has freed you from that, and it's you know there are jobs where your physical presence is required, but in 10, 20 percent of jobs, you could shift the, the the pattern of commuting to a point where, in fact, you know the, the the entire rail network would become much more efficient if you could make the shoulder periods broader. Well, Sweden actually looked at it conversely, and they said, look, let's give a tax incentive to companies to allow people to work from home. So instead of trying to, in using your, your type of uh, theory, instead of trying to make faster trains or more trains or bigger trains, they said, actually, if we put less people on those trains, because half the people are going to be working from home, you don't have the challenge. You suddenly fix the pollution problem. You fix the train problem. You fix so many other problems. You build a uh, you, local you, community. You also fix the car problem because traveling by Absolutely. train, at, traveling by train at eight thirty is horrible. Uh, not only are there a lot of people, but a lot of the people work in financial services, so they're assholes. Um, that's a joke, by the way. Okay, <laughs> but genuinely, the, the mood on a train full of banking people is less pleasant than the mood on a train full of the kind of people who travel at nine o'clock. Yeah. Okay. You know, there's much, you know, there's far less marginal psychopathy and, you know, and, and there's general courtesy and lo love of your fellow man. You get it kind of on a 10 o'clock train or a 9.30 train, which you don't get at 8 o'clock. And so no, the, uh, the Swedish point is very clever also because what it's doing, and I think this is an interesting thing, which is its government as impresario, its government as coordinator, saying, to be honest, they can get rid of the subsidy in five years' time. Yeah. Once the behavior has been seen Absolutely. and normalized, and that's a really important obstacle. So if you take video conferencing, if you take my Japanese toilet, okay, only 1% of Toto, Toto is the Japanese firm that makes toilets that clean your bum, only 1% of their sales worldwide are to Western Europe. 
Okay, seventy-one percent of Japanese toilets clean your bottom, right? As God intended. Okay, <laughs> right. It's big in China. It's getting it's getting big in the West Coast of the States, and yet in Western Europe, if you bought the hundred and fifty million pound penthouse at Number One Hyde Park, you'd end up having to wipe your own ass, because when I bought my uh, uh, Jebberit Aqua. Uh, AquaClean, just to give a bit of a product right. placement here. Okay, uh, and you can retrofit your toilet with a Jebberit um, bum cleaner as well. By the way, to okay. you know, people in Marlow who have just up done their done up their bathrooms and are feeling they've missed out. You can retrofit this thing, and it's a, it's a complete game changer. Because one of the things when, when you're 54, all those rituals you have. You think about it, the whole business between getting up in the morning and out of bed and leaving the house. Technology hasn't improved that at all, right? You know, yes. Cleaning your teeth. Okay, there's the electric toothbrush. There's the electric razor. They're, you know, they're improvements of degree. But part of the reason I like working from home is, is either that I don't have to do that at all, all that ritual stuff, or that I can do it in a different time of day. I don't have to do it first thing in the morning. Yes. So, um, you know, without disturbing your, your your listeners too much i haven't yet had a shower okay you know uh, but i will do later yeah and so what's interesting about that is that uh, you know any opportunity to make that daily thing you know more pleasant which the 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 the, the bum clean lavatory undoubtedly does now, with bum clean lavatory i had a bit of uh, spousal opposition to getting it too and I think it's embarrassment. I think if people don't want to be known as the people with the weird toilet, and it may, may seem sort of med medical or, you know, funny if they were originally developed for the disabled. So right. Jebberich, who invented this, originally developed them for the disabled. Now, interestingly, a lot of good technology is first developed for the disabled because by designing for the disabled, you actually design better for everybody because everybody is disabled to some degree most of the time. You know, okay, if you're carrying a cup of tea, you've lost the use of one hand. This is why, by the way, station design, okay, which is really weird. If you're fully disabled, the railways look after you fairly well, and they have disabled wheelchair ramps. If you're, as my dad is, 89 years old, he doesn't want to request a wheelchair. He doesn't want to, you know, that, that he, he can stand up and walk. But the provision for people who are, you know, and anybody with heavy luggage is kind of partly disabled. So if you design wheelchair ramps, they're also suitcase ramps. If you insist on door handles, not door knobs, it's helpful for people who have severe arthritis who can't use door knobs. But it's also handy for anybody carrying two mugs of tea because they can use their elbow. And so designing for the disabled is generally a good thing to do. I'm a big fan of fat finger design in mobile apps, for example. Parking apps, right? When do you pay to park if you use a parking app? You're walking between your car and the railway station. So you're in motion. So your level of precision you can achieve with finger gestures is maybe reduced by 50%. Yeah. Right? So having a big fat finger design with massive buttons is a really good idea. There is one app that does that very well. Uh, Spotify. Uh, yes, Spotify has the in-car mode, doesn't it? Yes. Which, which is which the is chunky basically. mode. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've realized you're in the car. Mm. You only need two buttons. You need to concentrate play skip whatever and you, that's it the rest of the functionality is then removed out of the way yeah there are there are apps for car called auto mode i think which you can get for android and apple which do the same to a variety they basically say if you're in the car there are only five functions you need we're going to make them and we're going to put them on a massive button 
Yeah, well, um, they're going to be gone anyway. Once they'll be banned, I guess, won't they? Well, no. I mean, I, I've got a car with an Alexa in it, and 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 fundamentally, it doesn't require me to have to do half the functions I used to do. Of course, because I can actually properly do them with my voice. T- t- tell me about your heads-up display as well. I'm quite keen on this. Yeah, well, I've got the new Range Rover Evoque, so the heads-up display is very useful. It shows me the speed that I should be going at. It gives me other information as I go past. It, it, it's it's it, When I first got it, I said, actually, this is what augmented reality is going to be like. It's a heads-up display on the world, because I, I still fundamentally believe. Can, can, can I, I shared this with someone at Google and they agreed with me, I'm glad to say, someone in there in the product design. I said, Google bottled on Google Glass yep. too soon. I would have bought Google Glass by now because actually it's a very, very good idea. Yeah. Because what I need to know now is um, a very simple thing, okay? I'm being, by dint of being an advertising executive, I spend a lot of my time talking to other people and being very, very very simplistic about it. When you're talking to other people, it's rude to look at your watch. Okay? Right? Which reminds me of the fantastic joke of, of the comedian Simon Evans. Um, yes, I, who said, I don't know if you know this joke. He said, I've, I've, got a, I've got a diver's watch. He said, I'm not quite sure why, because the only kind of diving I ever get to do, it's considered bad form to look at your watch. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> probably a bit... I don't, are you after the watershed? It's <laughs> fine. No, we're not. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um... So um, the the really interesting thing, I think the really interesting thing there is that um, uh, Google Glass would be very useful because I can see, okay, what time is it? What's my next appointment? Where am I supposed to be next? Without the rude business of going in the mid-conversation staring at a screen. Now, maybe if I'm a millennial, I could just stare at the screen and they don't think that weird. I'm from a generation where mid-conversation, suddenly going and looking at a screen and tapping at things, I still feel it's pretty rude. Yeah. And so Google Glass, I would have bought it by now. You know, I might have bought it slightly pissed in the airport one day, mm-hmm. but I would have bought it by now, and I would have started using it, and I'd say there's a 50% chance I would have stuck with it. And there's... Yeah, I, I think the heads-up display element of Google Glass would have worked. I think the problem was the utility that everyone wanted, which was the LinkedIn utility. You know, the facial recognition combined with a LinkedIn profile. So, ah, this is Rory. Ah, yes. When did I last meet Rory? Ah, got it now. Right. Oh, uh, was that a guy I met or is that just a familiar face? You know, that sort of thing. All of that function couldn't get put in because it crossed what they call the creepy line. People weren't prepared to sell or give away their privacy, but they wanted ah, other people. They, they got that. You see, psychologically, you could have solved that because on, you know, if currently it just gave the, you know, it, it links to my Outlook calendar, and it just uh, basically gives the name permanently. Of, the, uh, I mean, if you think about it, no one thinks it creepy. On my Zoom screen, as I'm talking to you, on the bottom left, it says Sam Steffi. Okay, yeah. now. I might occasionally, of course, in marketing, it's very easy because if you forget someone's name, you just, if they're male, you just call them Mike, and yeah. there's about a 25% chance you luck into it. But I might refer to you as Sam with 100% confidence now because it says Sam Sethi. Yeah. And if I, to be honest, if it didn't say Sam Sethi at the bottom of the screen, you've got a brother, haven't you? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure you've got a... Okay, because I do Not know somebody I'm else... Of, anyway. I do know someone else called Sethi. Right. There are and I might have been terrified of calling you Sam in case I was referring to the other, you know, right. the the other person called Sethi. Yeah. And 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 so 
you know, no one thinks that's creepy that your name appears on the Zoom screen. Now, you could have done that in a non creepy way, which is three meeting attendees, you know, Bob, Dave, you know, Karen. Okay, yeah. uh, you know, by process of elimination, I assume. Of course, with Indians, it could, you, the Karen could be a bloke, so you yeah. might have to be a bit careful there. But, but nonetheless, you know, I'd basically be at a level of confidence there. And I don't think that is pretty. You didn't, you didn't need facial recognition to some extent. You just need, okay, reminder of people in meeting, what the time is, you know, what your next meeting is, how, how long you've got to go. And, you know, and I, I, you, you can, that, that, again, the Creepy Valley thing is something which psychology can get you over. Right. But no, I mean, Google Glass you could have solved. Um, uh, the Roomba is an interesting one because I need to think about that more and I don't yet know because I'm the kind of person who would have bought one. To be yeah, honest. so am I. I mean, I. <coughs> I, I also, I also, I'll tell you why it's the moving parts thing is part of it because I haven't bought a drone. And the truth of the matter is, the reason I haven't bought a drone is I kind of know that something's going to go wrong with. I'm going to crash it. You know, yes, it's going uh, to it's gonna go wrong. And I can't face the risk of a three hundred pound total write off. You know, where it's stuck in a tree. And maybe my fear with the Roomba is all it takes is one cotton reel or some you know weird liquid on the floor or something like that. And I've basically got, you know, something which turns into one of those spiraling tech nightmares. Whereas something with no moving parts, you don't really have that fear. Yeah. But I don't think you can with a Roomba or, or mm. a Hoover. So unless it's a pure suck thing and then it would, you don't know what it was going to pick up. <coughs> No, exactly. It was just one of those. I just wondered because obviously no, no, it's, talk, it's, it's, really, about, it's a really good challenge. Yeah, no, we talked about Dyson and, and putting a premium price on a product. We talked about Apple putting premium prices on products because a laptop's a laptop's a laptop fundamentally. And in, in today's world, actually, more more often than not, it's just a browser interface. You don't really do much no. else with it, and yet we will pay for the you know the luxuriant element of a an Apple product. I mean, I talk about five G, and I say five G is going to be the most luxurious product out there in the world and people look at me and i go because it's going to cost every one of us to have to upgrade our phone to a 5g chip and and in apple world that's a premium of going to be of 1200 pounds so unless your kids do do you know my hack solution to that which is i'm not sure the answer to 5g isn't to buy a vodafone mi-fi in other words a portable wi-fi hotspot which is 5g and then connect your three devices to it Right. Rather than upgrading all three devices to be 5G compatible. Uh, I, I, I ask that question because it doesn't improve voice quality significantly, right? Yeah. In fact, coverage is going to be quite spotty. It's going to be awful. The other thing I said, by the way, which Vodafone didn't listen to me, is don't, what you should do with 5G is don't, what they've done, okay, where have they put 5G coverage? Nottingham, London, Cardiff. You know those cities that always get that shit. They were the first to get fibre broadband and so on. I said, no, no, no. The first 5G coverage should be on train lines. And you should put 5G along the train line and you should have the trains having 5G-powered Wi-Fi. They said, why is that better? And I said, because as you're doing it currently, right, you're going to have... 100,000 people who experience 5G a lot, right? If you do trains, you'll get 2 million people who experience 5G a bit. Yeah. And so if you want people to go, wow, this experience is absolutely brilliant, you want lots of people. The other point I make is in the middle of London, the middle of Nottingham, the mid- there's no bloody problem getting bandwidth anyway. 
right? You know, you go into a cafe, you know, I mean, you know, London, geez, there's not enough Wi-Fi in London, is there? No. Anytime you turn on your Wi-Fi in London, you've got, you know, 17 bloody options. And for the price of a cup of coffee, you can solve your problem anyway. You know, but if you'd done that on trains, it would have been a total game changer. You know, the ability to watch live television on a train as you rumble through the various tunnels. If you've got to think, is it the Marlowe donkey? Am I yes, right there? that's correct. Yeah. See, I'm really localising this content. <laughs> you must be pretty impressed. Yeah. Which is a shuttle, is it, between, which goes between, where is it? It's Marlowe and Bourne End. Marlow, that's right. So you get off at Bourne End, right? And then you, you basically, this train just goes back and forth. Yeah, and then you have to cross the platform to get onto a train that brings you into London from Bourne End. Ah, right, okay. And that Why? only happened, well, it only <laughs> happened because of Betteridge in the 60s. So they used to be... <coughs> beaching, you mean? A beaching, beaching that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you used to go from Marlow to Bourne End, but Bourne End used to link to Wickham. And so you used to be have two tracks, literally. So you could go Marlow to Wickham, or you could go and then on into London, right? Or, and what they did was they cut off the connection between Bourne End and Wickham, literally. So you come to a dead end station. You now literally go from Marlow to Bourne End, dead end. It's a road now that, that is there. And you have to just go oh, back onto another line. And that's the only reason. But before, you could have done Marlow, Wickham, and then the Chiltern line straight into central London. Why is it called the Marlow donkey? Nobody knows, do they? Uh, no, uh, it, it was originally, I believe, that it, that, that there was, it, was the, it was the line that they used to carry the, the crap, basically. So all these lines used to exist to the countryside for one reason. They used to be around Cookham, Marlow. It was all fruit, and it was countryside. And what they used to do, the, the trade-off deal was all of the London sewage crap that there was, they couldn't hide or do, they would bring it to the countryside to throw on the field. And the fruit and the veg would then go the other way into central London. And I that see. was its trade-off. And that's why you have these offshoot lines from places like Maidenhead. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah, local radio at its best, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. Fantastic. So, yes, yeah, so the Marlow donkey was actually a donkey line. They used to pull oh. the stuff on. Got it. So, yeah, so that was it. Look, Rory, we could talk for hours. We, we, yeah, we better, yeah. We better I know that you've got time. Look, Rory, I've, I've got more questions than I could ever done. We didn't even cover off whether advertising is dead, whether Kevin Kelly uh, is right about scarcity. Um, maybe we can get you back on another time. I'd be, absolutely, I'd be happy as anything. Really delighted. Uh, the argument, by the way, advertising patent isn't dead because advertising is older than humanity itself in that, as I you know, weirdly became quoted saying, you know, a flower is a weed with an advertising budget. Uh, there's a huge amount of advertising in nature, massive amount of advertising in nature, because the need to convince someone of something in advance yeah. is never going to go away, Okay. Before I can buy something, I need reason to, I need reasonable conviction that the thing is going to deliver what it says. And some form of costly signaling is necessary to that process. It's a path-dependent process. Economists don't understand it because they don't understand path-dependency. Uh, but the need to actually advertise, in other words, to substantiate a promise in some shape or form, is fundamental to any form of of organism interaction you know fish cleaner fish like ras have significant stripes advertising their 
their individual identity and rep, their brand reputation. It's never going to go away. Right. But Sutherland, thank you very much. For it's been a pleasure. I, I must go, but I'll be back on. Very, very happy to speak again in the next few months. Thank you very much, Roy. Thanks ever so much. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalks.technology to discover more great shows and interviews. See you next week. Same time, same place.